Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 111. We'll begin with a brief summation of Jeremiah chapters 16 through 19 and follow with a consideration of last names. Chapter 16 begins with solitude. Yirmiyahu is to have no wife and no kids. As mentioned in the previous chapter and episode, he also doesn't enjoy the company of friends. Quote, I have not sat in the company of revelers and made merry. I have sat lonely because of your hand upon me, for you have filled me with gloom. The loneliness doesn't come from bad hygiene or foul demeanor, although, as I have mentioned before, prophets were really not that great at parties. And before I get more into the loneliness, I want to pause about the party thing, because there's a moment where in verse 5, Yirmiyahu is really getting into the gory details of the coming cataclysm, the bodies, you know, the bodies piling up. And then he says, quote, Al tavo bet marzeach, al telech lispod, al tanod lahim, which the JPS renders as, quote, Do not enter a house of mourning, do not go to lament and to condole with them. The phrase Bet Marzach appears nowhere else in the whole of the Tanakh. The root Razach appears in one other place in the book of Amos, chapter 6, verse 7. Quote, Lachen ata yiglu golim vesar mirzach sruchim, which the JBS translates as, quote, Assuredly, right soon they shall head the column of exiles. They shall loll no more at festive meals. The use of the word mirzach here has an alliterative effect, as in the previous verse, Amos deplies mizrach in the same verse, sar and sruchim, but it might raise a question about how the same root can come to mean two opposite things, a festive meal and a house of mourning. But then again, if you think of the many rituals and traditions around death and mourning, it's not so difficult to imagine. Think of Irish wakes, or the jazz funerals of New Orleans, or the Shiva house, after the funeral where mourners retire to sit for seven days. There is a lot of food at a Shiva house. A lot. Okay, so back to the loneliness. This loneliness comes from delivering the prophecy of destruction that will rain down on the people, and because of this vision of doom and its repercussions, even though there will be deep despair, there is this moment in verses 14 and 15, which we'll repeat almost verbatim later in chapter 23, where Yirmiyahu says that in the future, the people will not swear in the name of God who redeemed them from Egypt, but in the name of the God who rescued them from the clutches of the northerners and the exile. And though this sounds somewhat hopeful, it, I mean, it, it kind of does in, in chapter 23, but here it's more like this is how it's going to be. The devastation is coming because of sinfulness. The destruction will be complete and total, though not permanent, and so profound that will, it will erase the memory of Egyptian redemption. And Yirmiyahu indulges his poetic side again, quote, Lo, I am sending for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they shall haul them out. And after that, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them out of every mountain and out of every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. Such evocative imagery indeed. And then the tone shifts to a prayerful one, where Yirmiyahu sounds like David, who is pursued by Shaul. It is the invocation of the desperate turning to God for help. Chapter 17 is one of those chapters that seems stitched together out of three distinct disparate units. The first part, verses 1 through 4, 
is a prophetic poem that echoes two verses in chapter 15, and it describes the wickedness of the Jews. Quote, the guilt of Judah is inscribed with a stylus of iron engraved with an adamant point on the tablet of their hearts and on the horns of their altars. Oh, damn! Part two drops some wisdom on the people, advising them only to trust in God, not in men, and to turn away from wickedness and corruption. Quote, like a partridge hatching what she did not lay, so is one who amasses wealth by unjust means. In the middle of his life it will leave him, and in the end he will be proved a fool. People like me from previous months, okay? Total control. Bing, bing, bong, bong, bing, bing, bing. You know what that is, right? And finally, part three, with a focus on the Shabbat. Yirmiyahu urges the people to keep the day as a day of rest and not to do business in Jerusalem on Shabbat. You know, we really don't have very much information on Shabbat's observance until Yirmiyahu's day, besides the original injunctions that appear in the Torah. We only have some references in the book of Amos about the shuttering of business on the day of. It's not clear when violating Shabbat became the venal sin that Yechezkel alludes to later, but Yirmiyahu clearly sees Shabbat not only as a cultural and national tradition, but as having religious and social value. In chapter 18, we find the second example of the speaker of parables being the parable himself. The first instance, if you remember, involved Yirmiyahu putting a loincloth on a dry riverbed, and now we accompany the prophet as he visits a potter. You're a wizard, Harry. I'm a what? A wizard. And Yirmiyahu marvels at the potter's work. Quote, and if the vessel he was making was spoiled, as happens to clay in the potter's hands, he would make it into another vessel, such as the potter saw fit to make. Because pottery, like potters, were found in practically every town and village, what Yirmiyahu was trying to express about the fate of the Jews with this parable was easily understood by his audience. And yet, despite the simplicity of the message, the people did not change their ways. Not only that, quote, they said, come, let us devise a plot against Jeremiah. For instruction shall not fail from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor oracle from the prophet. Come, let us strike him with the tongue, and we shall no longer have to listen to all those words of his. So Yirmiyahu asked God to smite his enemies, to make the men die of disease, their children die by famine, and their wives remain childless widows. Oh, damn! Chapter 19 recounts Yirmiyahu's confrontation with the elders and priests at the potsherd gate, which opens onto the valley of Ben-Hinnom in Jerusalem. God tells him to go and get a jug from the potter and proclaim the coming ruin with the usual images of apocalyptic destruction. You know, fire, carnage, cannibalism. And then he's to smash the jug, which, gotta say, after all the imagery he embroidered, it seems a bit of an anticlimax. I mean, you have, like, parents eating their children, and then... I mean, wouldn't you expect something more like... As if that would really make a difference. Thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration. Okay, this episode is going off on a bit of a tangent to indulge an interest of mine. 
anthroponomy or anthroponomastics, which is a highly jargony way of saying I'm interested in the origins of the names of human beings, specifically last names. So I guess that's more onomastics or onomatology. And this whole business came to mind because of Yirmiyahu's poetic visit to the Potter, and how all I could think of is... So Potter is one of those family names or last names or surnames which is based on a specific profession. The very idea of having a surname is a relatively recent historical development. It evolved from a medieval naming practice called a byname. If you lived in a small village and you were named John, and a neighbor around the way was also named John, a byname would be uh, added to yours to make it easier to identify you. So perhaps if you made barrels, folks would call you John Cooper. Or if you made earthenware vessels, you'd be known as John Potter. Names like Baker, Bailey, or Bailiff, Bannister, Bowman, Carpenter, Carver, Dexter, or Dyer, Draper, or Hooper are all derived from professions. Your area of residence might also inspire your byname. If you came from North Town or North of Town, you might be known as John Norton. Names like Atwood, Banks, Barlow, Croft, Hepburn, or Underwood are all derived from places like the woods or a hillside or an enclosed field. What? Is your name? My name is Sir Lancelot of Camelot. What is your quest? To seek the Holy Grail. What is your favorite color? Blue. Right, off you go. Oh, thank you. By 1400, most English and some Scottish people used surnames. Henry VIII, who ruled in the first half of the 16th century, was the first to order that marital births be recorded under the surname of the father. We Jews embraced these onomastic traditions many, many centuries before. But we more commonly used patronymics, that is, a naming system where the first name is followed by either Ben or Bat, and then the father or mother's name. So I would be known as Dan Ben Yisrael Naftali. The same system was at work when Aramaic was the lingua franca for Jews, with Bar or Barat as a separator between the individual and their parents' name. The first to adopt permanent family names were actually Sephardic Jews in the late 10th or early 11th century in Spain and Portugal. Cordovero, Arbarbanel, Chaltiel, De Leon, Alcalai, and Toledano were in common use for centuries before Spanish Jews were scattered to the winds by Ferdinand and Isabella on July 31st, 1492. Ashkenazi Jews shifted when the Habsburg Emperor Joseph II decreed on November 12, 1781, that all Jews in his kingdom must adopt surnames. Prussia, Galicia, France, regions of Germany, and all other countries soon followed suit. The patronymic is still very much in use in religious settings. When someone is called to the Torah for an aliyah in an orthodox setting, the gabai summons the honoree with his patronymic, and in more liberal settings, the patronymic or matronymic is used. Same rules apply for religious documents, such as the ketubah or marriage contract. However, there is another trend in family naming, especially prevalent among nearly half of the Jewish population of the planet. It is known as ivrut, or Hebraization. As the word indicates, ivrut means adopting a Hebrew surname to replace the diasporic surname you arrived with on the shores of the motherland, be it while under Ottoman or British control or currently under Jewish sovereignty. Very few of those Jews who arrived in Palestine had Hebrew surnames. If you were of the priestly line, you might be called Kohen, or if you were of a Levite descent, then Levi, but that's pretty much it. Some surnames that were Hebrew-sounding were originally acronyms, Katz, for example, came from the first letters in the words Kohen Tzedek, the priest of righteousness. All the Bergs and Steins and Mans were of German origin, and all the Skis and Witzes were Slavic. 
uh, all those stories of people arriving at Ellis Island and having their surnames simplified by officials for ease of pronunciation or spelling are largely apocryphal. But such a move would have been overly ideological. That is, the supposed official took a look at this foreigner, this alien standing before him with a name like Gladenstein, and thought to himself, this weirdo isn't going to fit in to the great American melting pot with a name like that. So, Gladstone it is. Golda Mabelwitz came to the United States from Russia as a little girl in 1905. She lived in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and went to North Division High School until she met Morris Meyerson, whom she married in 1917. When they made Aliyah to Palestine in 1921, a precondition of their marriage, they would not remain Meyerson in the new land, as Ivrut too was overtly ideological. Golda Meyerson would, upon the urging of Moshe Shertok, Sharet, <clears throat> became Golda Meir. <laughs> Ivrut was different. It was from the ground up. Whereas the supposed name changer at Ellis Island was a representative of the state wishing for all immigrants to fit in, in pre-state Palestine during the closing decades of the 19th century, the understanding and belief amongst Olim, the immigrants themselves, was that a Hebrew name would make them feel even more rooted to the new land while simultaneously severing the connection to the old one. This move was part of the larger Zionist project, of which a not-so-small element was Shlilat Hagola, or negation of the diaspora, which I spoke about at some length in episode 88. How it plays out here, or in pre-state Palestine, was simple. Coming to Palestine, Aliyah was meant to be a transformative experience. The European Jew would give way to a new Israeli Jew. A wholly new Jew. New in every way. Strong, where the diaspora Jew was seen as weak. Kibbutz living, where the diaspora Jew languished in a shtetl. Hebrew speaking, where the diaspora Jew spoke Yiddish. And one of the critical first steps of creating this new Israeli Jew was adopting a Hebrew name. Snuffles was my slave name. You shall now call me Snowball, because my fur is pretty and white. Okay. One of the first folks to pioneer this process at the turn of the 20th century was Eliezer Perelman, who Hebraicized his surname to Ben Yehuda. He also incidentally and single-handedly revived the Hebrew language from near death. <laughs> However, one of the more significant advocates for Hebraization was Yitzchak Shimshelovich, otherwise known as Yitzchak Ben Svi. He studied law in Istanbul alongside David Green, <clears throat> David Ben-Gurion, and would eventually become Israel's second president and grace Israel's 100 shekel bill. He wrote, quote, our surnames are mostly of foreign origin, which cling to exile. Even names based on Hebrew first names were damaged and distorted from the original by German and English suffixes like son or son, and in the Slavic, in, ovich, ovski, and shvili. These surnames fill the air on the pages of our newspapers, the posters and announcements in our streets and public squares. It is indeed not really clear if the hardship of this inheritance which remained with us as a result of the Middle Ages and subsequent ghettoization should be tolerated. Hebraization also had its old school proponents as well, the rabbis, who always encouraged Jewish parents to give their kids Hebrew first names. But now, the more Zionist of the bunch began to advocate for last names too. For example, Rabbi Menashe Klein became Rabbi Menashe HaKatan, and Rabbi Shlomo Goronchik became Rabbi Shlomo Goren. And the process continued well apace into the 1940s, when in 1944, the Zionist leadership and the Jewish National Council proclaimed it the, quote, year of naturalization and the Hebrew name. A special committee under the chairmanship of Mordechai Nemzabi, the Jewish agency advisor on matters of civilian defense, published a booklet which contained guidelines for the creation of new Hebrew surnames. 
You could Hebraicize your foreign surname by changing the vocalization. Leib becomes Lev. Or you could change consonants. So Borg or Brog becomes Barak. You could also shorten the foreign surname by dropping the ending. Rosenberg becomes Rosen. Or shorten it with the Hebrew meaning. So Yaakovovich becomes Yaakovi. You could also translate the foreign surname into Hebrew according to the meaning, so Abramovich becomes Ben Avraham. And speaking of patronymics, you could also take the name of your father or mother who perished in the Shoah and make a name of that too, like Bat Miriam or Ben Moshe. Or you could take the name of a son or daughter that fell in the war, like Avi Noam, Avi, father of Noam. Or a brother or sister who was killed, like Achi Meir, Achi, brother of Meir. You could also just adopt a biblical name like David or Shaul or Shlomo, or take a name from the landscape of the land of Israel, like Hermoni, Elat, Gilad, or from Israel's flora or fauna, like Eshel, which means orchard, or Oren, which means pine. In some contexts, especially after the State of Israel was established in 1948, recommendation and suggestion became command, policy. Israel's first Prime Minister David Green, I, I'm David Ben David Ben Gurion, David Ben Gurion instructed the IDF as follows: quote, "It is desirable that every commanding officer, from squadron commander to chief of staff, should change his surname, whether German, English, Slavic, French, or foreign in general, to a Hebrew surname, in order to be a role model for his soldiers. The Israel Defense Forces must be Hebrew in spirit, vision, and in all internal and external expressions." A similar order was issued in 1950 to all state officials and those in particular who would represent Israel abroad. A committee for Hebrew names was established to supervise the implementation of that order, whose task was to assist and advise the choice of a Hebrew name. For folks who wanted to erase their diasporic past, this all sounds well and good, and perhaps the suggestion turning to command might not rankle. But what of the people who, that didn't? especially when this assimilationist move only moved in a particular direction, that is, from non-Ashkenazi to Ashkenazi. Sephardi and Mizrahi Jewish immigrants from Arab and Muslim lands found that their children were typically given new Hebrew names in school, often without their permission. In other cases, folks took on more Hebrew, more Israeli names out of a desire to distance themselves from their Arab origins. In one story that made the rounds in Israeli papers, a young Moroccan Israeli named Yiram Atiyah changed his last name to Netanyahu after a chance encounter with an Arab, a Palestinian, who had the same last name, and it left him horrified at their shared identity. Today, Hebraization still steps on people's toes. Aryeh Deri, leader of the Mizrahi Orthodox Shas party who spent three years in jail for taking bribes, often used Hebraization's erasure of Mizrahi culture as a political wedge issue. To drive this point home, he added his Moroccan middle name Maklouf to his campaign material and Twitter handle. Ethiopian Jews faced similar pressure when the Ethiopian Aliyah intensified in the 1990s. New immigrants were given Hebrew names in addition to their Amharic ones, which disrupted an intricate Ethiopian tradition in which an individual takes on the first name of his parent as a last name when he gets married. Only Jews from the former Soviet Union, who also came in droves in the 1990s, generally resisted Hebraization. Perhaps it was their overwhelming numbers. Between 1989 and 2006, around 979,000 Soviet Jews came to Israel. In a country of 5.3 million Jews, that's a rather significant demographic. Or perhaps it was because they were Ashkenazim, you know, that made their thanks but no thanks on the Hebraization thing acceptable to the other, you know, 4 million or so Jewish Israelis. Although, as many Russian Olim will tell you, it's not like the native-born Israelis accepted them anymore because they were named Gershon instead of Gennady. 
And incidentally, Israel's Minister of Tourism from 2009 to 2013, Stas Mizeznikov, did not feel the need to Hebraicize his Slavic first or last name, nor was there any public pressure on him to do so. So, yeah, that. In recent years, many Israelis have been double-barreling, thus making a sort of peace or perhaps reclaiming the pre-Hebraicized name as part of their current identity. So you'll get names like former IDF Chief of Staff Amnon Lipkin Shachak. In any event, calling back now, I wonder what Yirmiyahu's surname would have been had he lived in Iberia in the 13th century or in Bohemia in the 18th century, and if he would have Hebraicized had he made Aliyah in the 20th. Whichever and whatever it might have been, it would have been an interesting moment to observe if a government official would have wanted him to make a change that he wasn't particularly interested in making. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out TanakhCast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 112 when we continue the book of Jeremiah with chapters 20 through 23.